Hi, welcome to this podcast episode of Helix and Gene, where we cover all aspects of medical wellness. I'm your host, Sam Baluch, with my buddy, John D'Olimpio. Today, we have a really, really special guest with us. He is uh, not just a world-renowned, prominent expert in what he does, he's also John's father. <laughs> <laughs> so today, um, I'd just like to introduce that we have Dr. James D'Olimpio, Director of Supportive and Palliative Oncology at the Monter Cancer Center of Northwell Cancer Institute. He is also the Assistant Professor of Medicine at Hofstra and has appeared as an expert in his field on CNN as well as the Today Show. Dr. DeLimpio, uh, James, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on. I'm very, very honored and looking really, really forward to this interview. Well, thanks, Sam. It was really great in inviting me. And um, when I heard that we were going to be on this podcast, I thought it was going to be like a real interesting diversion for me. And, and I do appreciate that. Um, I just wanted to and thank you for that introduction. Um, as a disclaimer, I just want to let you know that um, I don't represent Northwell today. Yes. Um, I represent myself. And any opinion that I do give you is basically coming out of my own opinion base. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, being part of the Northwell system is a is a great honor for me, uh, and to be able to educate the public and uh, be able to sort of give my own uh, ideas about what's going on in this field. Um, I, I do appreciate that opportunity. So yeah. thank you. We're very much looking forward to it. I was reading the list of accomplishments on this gentleman, and you guys can all Google him and read. It's a mile long, and it's so fascinating. And in speaking with James, he's even more fascinating as an individual than he is as a doctor. So <laughs> today, we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm just going to let everybody know this will be a little bit of a technical show, so I'm going to just ask James to stop and explain a couple of things here and there. All right, beautiful. So James, why don't you tell us a little bit um, about yourself, about your upbringing? How did you come about to be where you are today? Well, it's an interesting story for me anyway. <laughs> I came from a, a large Italian family uh, in the Boston area, the South Shore of Boston. Um, so I was one of six children. Um, when I was a very little child, I was interested in medicine, and uh, I was fascinated by my pediatrician. His name was Dr. Charles Jurf, and I'll tell you a very uh, poignant story about that right now, just yeah, to sort yeah. of get the ball rolling. Um, he was um, my idol as I was growing up, and he used to put me on his lap, and I used to look in his microscope, and he'd give me a lollipop, and he'd give me a shot. You know, that was basically <laughs> what this was about. Right. Um, and he actually used to open his office um, on a Sunday morning with my mother and her six kids just to see us, you know, Aww. to take care of us. He was just such a wonderful man. Um, and flash forward, um, as I was in uh, college uh, as a pre-medical student, um, I would run into him at the hospital because I used to work in the lab in the hospital. I was first an orderly, and then I worked my way through pre-med, and then I was uh, in the lab working my way through pre-med. And I would run into him in the elevator. He was in his early 60s at the time, and he'd say, how are you doing and all this. And during that period, it was so hard to get into medical school. And I said, well, I'm doing okay, but, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to get in. And I said, well, stick with it. You know, stick with it. So um, uh, maybe a year or two into it. I was probably, I'm going to say, 23 years old, maybe. And I was working late night, and they called me. They said, you have to draw blood on a patient in the cardiac care unit who just had a heart attack. It turned out to be him. Oh, wow. So I went into the room, and I drew blood from his arm, and he's talking to me. You know, he says, so how's it going? And he says, I'm trying. You know, I'm still trying to get in. He says, well, stick to it. Okay, so you're, you're really going to... Um, 
succeed. I said, well, thanks, Dr. Treffman. I always appreciated that. Now, this is the part that's really amazing. I was leaving the room, and he called out my name, waved to me, and died. He had his heart failed. So he was, I felt so strongly, passing the baton on to me. So when I went to the to the wake, and was um, you know talking to his wife, I told her that story, and he said, and she said, now you really have to do it. <laughs> I said, yeah, I Pressure's really do. <laughs> yeah, talk about pressure. And I did get in a year later, and um, wow. you know managed to get through it all. I started out in Mexico uh, at the Autonomous University of Guadalajara. I was there for a couple of years, uh, took some tests, got, was able to get back into the states, finished up at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And then did my fellowship um, through Mount Sinai, and then I did my residency through Mount Sinai, and then I did my fellowship at Montefiore at Albert Einstein. And then I moved on to uh, other areas uh, of oncology, including palliative care uh, at the time was an infancy type of uh, specialty in hospice care. And I was 40 years old, and there was nothing out there. And I wanted to help develop that program, which is what I did. Um, and then uh, Northville got wind of it, and they, uh, at the time it was North Shore LHA, yeah. and they uh, approached me to um, develop the programs uh, at North Shore. How did you develop that program? Like, what went on? What did you see? Where was it that all of a sudden well, I had said, started I'm going to go this route? Yeah, well, <laughs> it was kind of an interesting story. I was working in an inventory care center, and I got a phone call from a nurse who was a dear friend, and she said to me, you know, I've been working in a hospice. I don't even know what it was, really. I mean, I know a little bit about it, because at Montefiore, we, we did some early work in that pain management, mainly. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you do a morphine drip and that kind of stuff. Anyway, she called me, and I had known her for a long time, and she said, um, the medical director of this hospice is like 30 patients and just getting started, but his wife is having a um, problem pregnancy, and we needed somebody to sort of um, help him out and work with him or work for him. Uh, in place of him because he has to leave. I said, okay. So I did it for three months or so like we were originally planning on doing. And then it turned out that he couldn't come back. So they asked me to stay on. And I said, okay, I'll do it part-time because I had so many other things to do. Um, and this kept building, building, building. And this is how the field developed. It was in its infancy back then. Um, England had had it more uh, developed in palliative care and hospice care. They origin originated it in the 60s. Wow. A woman named Cicely Saunders started it um, and now moved what on with that. what does palliative care mean? Well, palliative, Can you just explain that? Yeah, sure. Palliative care is a um, discipline now. Um, it is certified by the American Board of uh, Medical, Sub Medical Specialties. Um, and it's an all-encompassing um, discipline which takes into account the different factors that patients go through with what's called life-limiting disease. Now, originally, it was uh, developed to be for patients at the end of life, sort of a bridge uh, for uh, the pre-hospice type of situation where most of the patients in the early days were cancer patients. But now it's, it's um, developed into patients who have congestive heart failure and neurologic diseases and things like that, where quality of life is the key uh, for the patient and the patient's family. And in that quality of life, did you guys discover that you can add longevity to that life? Yeah, that took, a long, that took a long time. Yeah. Um, we always knew that if you paid attention to the quality of life of a patient, whether it be pain management or other symptom management, psychological issues, uh, and making sure that everybody communicated uh, well with each other, that that would lead to 
an improvement in a person's quality of life. And many times we, we would say, well, you know, these patients are living longer than we expected. And these are patients who are really sick. This is uh, back in, let's, I'm going to say the 90s, early 2000s. And then um, a landmark paper was published a few years ago, the New England Journal of Medicine, that actually looked at this, the Dana-Farber Cancer Center looked at this. Um, and they found that in patients who uh, were, it's actually a randomized study, were randomized to receive palliative care, which is all of that, I consider it like a syringe full of good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Pain management, good communication, um, being able to understand what a, a person really wants and what, and what kind of suffering they're going through, those kinds of things. Like what the ancient shamans used exactly, to do. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Offering comfort and curing some people. Isn't that amazing? It was amazing, <laughs> really true. Um, and so... Uh, they randomized these folks, and this is a few years ago, and it, it just basically exploded onto the landscape of cancer and, and palliative care in which we were able to show that uh, patients who did receive this type of care versus those who received quote-unquote standard of care, which was just, you know, good care but not this kind of attentive care, they lived s several months longer than those that just got the standard of care. Now, when you think about it, in cancer, for example, these are cancer patients, if you have a drug that is given to a cancer patient and it prolongs their life by three or four months, that's an FDA home run, all right? That drug is, 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 is put into the marketplace and uh, with a lot of fanfare. Um, well, three to four months relative to if you have a year, that's exactly, an extra That's actually really, life. really important. That's a, great, <laughs> that's a great comment. And so, you know, those of us who are doing palliative care and have been doing it for a long time said, well, this is really important. And... Uh, as a result of that, integration of palliative care has become really a standard now in uh, cancer. And it actually has been changed uh, in the sense of uh, being now in, uh, integrated into supportive oncology, supportive care. So this is what I do. We integrate these areas. Uh, supportive care is more towards understanding survivorship in terms of patients who are cured and what they have to go through to get there and what they go through subsequent to this treatment and also during the treatment. How do we get patients through the toxicities of treatment or the difficulties in treatment? Um, and that's supportive care. And when we use that term, supportive care versus palliative care, which a lot of folks don't really understand and probably yeah. never will, yeah, yeah. Um, supportive care is much more uh, user-friendly. Yeah. It's probably the best way Sounds to put it. Sounds better to the ears. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it actually leads to more um, open-mindedness in the sure. medical community. Yeah. So that when we're doing handoffs from one patient uh, to a patient from one uh, interdisciplinary team to another, it makes a lot more sense that, look, we're trying to support this patient. We're not trying to palliate this patient. Because mm. define the difference between supporting and palliating. <laughs> you know, really, it's, dif it's difficult. I can do it, right. but it yeah. takes a lot of time to do that. Um, and then uh, understanding the uh, very specialized communication skills that are important in this kind of area is, uh, is really a focus and function of supportive and palliative care, supportive care. Uh, with regards to how we apply that uh, to patients as they go through their journey, whether that journey is a difficult journey or a journey in which they are not able to be cured or go into a prolonged remission and, or those that do. Um, each consideration is different. Um, we don't have to apply all of our skill sets to every single patient. Some patients don't need a lot of that uh, type of intervention, some do. And we have to be able to pick and choose which patients we're going to be able to um, really apply a lot of those How do you do aspects. Well, it, it's, it's a combination of things uh, in terms of being able to work with the interdisciplinary team. 
for example, I mean, I couldn't do all of this right. myself. I have to ask uh, our team or develop a, a what team approach. What does that approach. team consist of? The team consists of doctors, nurses, people? pharmacists, okay. advanced care practitioners, such as nurse practitioners and, and physician's assistants, mm-hmm. um, different types of disciplines, such as nutrition, such as <clears throat> physical medicine rehabilitation, uh, obviously pharmacology, um, surgery, mm-hmm. radiation, all of these teams that work together and then they become very subspecialized in terms of, well, what team takes care of a patient with head and neck cancer, what, patient, what team takes care of a patient with breast cancer or with uh, GI cancer such as pancreatic cancer, it's all different. You guys did this without computers, so we the did communication it all. Oh, sure. must it, have been... Yeah, and, and, and it, again, it was in its rudimentary form way back when, and now it's really become much more mature and still not as mature as we really want it to yeah, be. Sure. We're really trying to We're work that. We're just scratching that. the surface We're just now. scratching yeah, the surface yeah, yeah, and trying to understand all these different... Because um, we just opened I guess up the, the word is, Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think that the algorithms that we're going to be needing in order to get those interdisciplinary teams to the bedside at the right time is our next challenge. And this is what we're going to be trying to do as we move forward um, in uh, the various different types of aspects. In, in, in terms of the, the medical oncologic aspect, the psychological oncologic aspects, right? Psycho-oncology. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, uh, all the other disciplines that all factor into quality of life. And what, we, what, what I think the term is wellness is probably not as, as well as it should be put together. Um, I do think that um, the whole idea of holistic care, though, um, as a doctor, when I first heard that term, I kind of pushed back on it. Like it's sort of like a kumbaya kind of thing, right? But it really isn't. Holistic care means the total care of the patient. And what that really means is all of these interdisciplinary teams working together to be able to take this patient through their journey. And this is part of what I do in in the cancer room. And when it comes to patients who are really sick, and I have taken care of many, many patients who are truly, really very sick, um, they need more care than those that don't or have been through that journey. And if I can get through, the, get through that journey with them, terrific. And if we, if we can't do that, then we can hand it off to someone who can. You know, it's so refreshing to hear this come out of, you know, your mouth, someone who, you know... 50 years ago started at the stem of wellness essentially Mm -hmm. you know when it was only being paid attention to toward the people that had a very short time to live and now we're taking that in today's world in kind of that gray area between traditional medicine and holistic medicine that's merging which is kind of turning into functional medicine absolutely and, and and what's happening there is it's so cool because that's what we're trying to do here at Helix and Gene. Like mm-hmm. we're we want to bring a form of that wellness at its root to people in more of a um, almost like doing it before you know it hits the fan mm-hmm. <laughs> and getting yeah. everybody you know at, at at a groundwork to teach them. Hey, if you make these changes long term, your chances of ending up in your hands for care mm-hmm. may you know, be much less in the sense that, you know, from a preventative standpoint. Oh, absolutely. The preventative aspect of it is critical to longevity. It's critical to functional, you know, improvement. Um, For example, patients who have gone through chemotherapy for the purposes of curing their cancer and have been cured of their cancer, many times have to deal with some of the uh, after effects of the treatment which can damage this, the uh, central nervous system, we call that cognitive impairment, mm-hmm. or the peripheral nervous system, we call that peripheral neuropathy, 
uh, and being able to deal with that as time goes by to improve that functional status of the patient. It can be done with medications to a certain extent, but as I've gotten through this field and as I've been in my, this is my 51st year I'm doing this, but my uh, probably 35th year in uh, actually doing it for this particular area as I got out of training, um, I have found that writing prescriptions and medications and you know pharmacologic intervention is really only a part of what we're doing and it's not a as huge a part as we used to think it would have been in other words i look at it between a 30 to 50 percent contribution to everything else that we're trying to do right. uh, so as that goes through you have to be much more circumspect and much more selective to make those distinctions with these patients. Well, those medications and things that you do prescribe, I also think just work better if those other elements are elevated in... Right. In, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. So, we, we call that performance status. Okay. And when that happens, even a patient who's sick who presents with a diagnosis of a cancer, let's say, uh, that requires a lot of different treatments, mm -hmm. right? Okay. The, the actual functional status of that patient at the very beginning of their journey is critically important. So the performance status is, is sort of ranked in a score, that kind of thing. And a, a score of zero, which is a good thing in certain uh, certain scales, it's called the ECOG scale, or a, a, um, another type of scale called Karnofsky scale of 100, that's the perfect way of, of, of approaching this. So I call it the Navy SEAL uh, approach, <laughs> where if someone's in really good shape, um, they can get through the treatments and actually have a better outcome and those that sort of start out in kind of bad shape. We call that comorbidity contribution. Uh, and if you have a lot of comorbidities and you're weak and you're 60 years old, it's going to be very difficult for you to get through a treatment. Whereas if you're 60 years old and you've really been through a really good physical and uh, nutritional status through the whole course of your life, you can get through that treatment much differently. It's uh, so amazing that you say that. I'm sorry to cut you off because yeah. I really want to share something with you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know in exactly what you just said, you know, in being in the fitness field and mm -hmm. wellness for 20 years, mm -hmm. I've seen a 20 year shift in almost all age ranges. Sure. Okay, I've worked with over a thousand people on this. Mm -hmm. And a couple of things that I've seen is exactly what you said. I've had so many people from the age of 60 to 80 have to have to have these procedures performed and the fact that they were in such good shape in a lot of cases mm -hmm. the doctors were so quick to do the procedure where they've told them like normally we may not have done this right and their recovery yeah. you know it's like it's like you can't stop i guess uh you know the faith of god or whatever you believe in if something's going to happen to you but you can control how you can react to it if your body's prepared for it yeah. right so like that's kind yeah, of modifying modifying yeah. risk factors and yeah exactly factors. right in terms of what we're trying to do. And we talked about this a little earlier in terms of the helix and gene aspect yeah, yeah. of things, you know, phenotypic expression versus, and I want to get into that you know, genotypic segue, expression yeah. and, and what that actually means from the standpoint can of people overcoming that, that yeah. you know, overcoming, they might have a specific genetically programmable risk in terms of, say, cognitive impairment or physical impairment or not being able to handle specific things or they're at risk for other types of diseases, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, again, the, um, we, call, we were talking about the mosaicism of all this and what factors can actually modify this. Well, lifestyle can, for yeah, sure. sure. Right? So if you smoke and drink and things of that nature, um, you're going to uh, un unleash a lot of the 
uh, genotypic risk that you might have as on the day that you were born. Can you explain the difference between the genome and the phenome and how it relates to the conversation? That sure, sure. So about? we're all sort of we're all born with a specific genotypic expression map, so sure, to speak. Right. Okay, our we, blueprint. We, yeah, our blueprint. We have um, all different manifestations of of the genome, right? So some of us have specific mutations in that gene, or deletions, or different types of. Uh, um, uh, how can I put this, um, discrepancies in that particular uh, gene map. And so what, ha what happens is that during the course of your life, those particular uh, deletions or mutations or changes or whatever may or may not be expressed. And for example, if you um, uh, smoke cigarettes or you drink too much alcohol or your lifestyle is extremely stressful and stress is a huge yeah. plays a huge role in this, um, then sure. what happens is that whatever risk that you might have been born with is unshielded and you actually express that, okay? So if you have a risk for, um, let's say, a specific type of uh, dementia, all right? Um, there's a specific gene called the APOE gene, and if there's a deletion in that gene or a change in that gene or whatever it might happen to be, or you're carrying that particular gene, uh, expression, then um, you might be more, uh, cap not capable, but you might be more um, inclined. inclined or you might have more of a risk to develop that particular type of cognitive impairment if you're receiving chemotherapy. So people call this chemo brain, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you're getting chemotherapy and you develop cognitive impairment as a result of that treatment, there could be an increased risk phenotypically because you carry that gene, that APOE gene, you're getting the chemotherapy, which damages your your central nervous system, and you have that gene now that's just waiting and saying, I can't wait to be you know, expressed now because the chemotherapy has made this happen. So what happens? Well, you, you start forgetting words, and you have verbal memory issues, and it's going to be difficult for you to recover from this as time goes by. And whereas another person who doesn't have that gene may, may say, well, I, I went through this fine. There was no problem with it. That patient who had that problem actually is more at risk for Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So if you have an Alzheimer's risk with this particular gene and you have um, a damaged or a lesion that makes that happen, that sets that into motion phenotypically. So that's the phenotypic expression of your gene risk. Okay, that's just very simply expressed. Yeah. It's much more complicated than that, but that's how it's expressed. Right. Whereas if you don't have that specific pattern, the APOE pattern that I just mentioned, um, the chances of you recovering from the treatment without that particular cognitive impairment is much better. Mm. All right, so how do we, how do we know this in, in anticipation of this? Is there right. a blood test that I can do that I can tell that patient? No, there isn't. There's nothing yet that I can do that can identify that patient's risk. It's done in research. We know that it takes place, but what about the clinic? What about my patient that I see in front of me um, who I'm going to offer them treatment? How can I make that um, happen? Well, yet we don't have that, all right? Whereas we're just talking about the Navy SEAL thing, right? right? If you're in really great shape and you keep yourself in great shape, even if you might have that specific gene or there are many, many others that might put you at different risk of different things, I'm using that as an example, if you're in really great shape, that might not be expressed phenotypically and you'll do okay. Right? So even if you have the gene, if you're... Right. If you, if many you're times if you're in really good shape, you'll, and you just, you will not, you'll mitigate it. For example, if you've never smoked and never right. drank alcohol, and you are able to manage yourself in, in really in really good shape from that standpoint, you might not have that gene expressed in your in your particular treatment. Yeah. 
Wow. And that's really important yeah. because when we're talking about this, I call that heter the heterogeneous aspect of the mosaicism for this particular things. Um, there's a lot of what's called hybridization and, and different types of mixed expressions that lead to these types of um, in, in, inconsistent predictions about what's going to happen. Now that mosaicism that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Now, now, what does that term mean to our listeners? Well, what it means is that there's um, different types of expressions of a specific gene or a specific type of uh, uh, mutation, etc., that might only occur for half of that particular gene expression. So if you're carrying, if you're just carrying half of that gene or half of that expression, nothing's going to happen. Whereas if, you, if you're carrying the whole thing, then you are going to get it expressed. So there's a, a lot of different ways of looking at that. So when you're looking at, let's say, um, what happens to the actual genome during that period of time, well, what can cause different breaks in that particular genome? And there are different types of expressions. Uh, there's something called the telomere. I don't know if you've heard about mm -hmm. that. But the telomere is sort of like a, um, a way of being able to predict whether there's been damage to the gene as a result of uh, different um, patterns of DNA metabolism. So if the... T that has to do with environment? Uh, it, yes, it does. Okay. Uh, smokers, for example, will have a shortened telomeric strand, okay. which means that um, that particular repair mechanism of that gene because the gene's constantly trying to uh, repair itself. But if that telomere has been damaged in such a way, um, for example, again, I use smoking, which is a huge issue, but different other aspects of different carcinogens and, and different things that we face in the environment will shorten that telomere, and the telomere can't repair the DNA. And as a result, our consistent you know, sort of life force to try to repair the DNA is blocked. So people don't live as long because they just run out of gas. You know, they run out of ways of repairing the DNA. Got it. So that's what we mean by yeah. that. Yeah. So it's it's almost like the symphony of life, right? This mosaicism yeah. that you're talking about. Sure. And, 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 oh, that's music. Yeah, and, and music. Here we go. Right? All right. So, so right. So yeah. so and something we spoke about earlier, you and I, was your connection to music. And mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit about that and how you relate? what you do, you know, it, it's it's so great talking to, I can see that you're a scientist and an artist. So they're both like just jammed in there, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like looking for its expression. <laughs> so how do yeah. you combine that, you know, uh, mosaic music brain with that, you know, oh my God, I can see the light through the medicine sure, and combine sure. the two. Well, let, let me give you a great example of that. First of all, I am a musician and I have been since I was a little boy. I played the piano for a long time. Wow. And, um, I, you know, as a result of that, when I, when I practice my instrument or when I try to understand how music is connected, um, I, I think of it very intuitively, or I think of it as, you know, part of that whole thing of medicine of being an art and a science, right? And what's happening in medicine, before I get into that little story, is that um, there's a tendency to be more, uh, I'm going to say, sterilely scientific, as opposed to really still incorporating the art of medicine, which you have to do. Yeah, sure. Even absolutely. in this particular day absolutely. and age, you absolutely. absolutely have to do it. Absolutely. So um, that, that sort of lends itself to... Uh, well, how do you relate music and how do you relate medicine? Well, one of the, one of the great resonant um, types of uh, experiments that were done on this was that they took three populations of patients, these researchers, really brilliantly constructed, I think it was in England, and they, um, they showed, what they did was they did functional MRIs okay. of people's brains as they were listening to music, okay? So 
what they did was they had just someone sitting like you know, we're doing now and just sort of you know, vegging out, out listening to music and yeah. getting uh, their functional MRIs. Okay, and they looked at them. Okay, so you have those pictures up on the wall. And then um, they had people listening to music, you know, their favorite music or whatever it might happen to have been. And what they found was that they, let's say the uh, original color of the functional MRI was, I'm just going to say, kind of a bluish color, all right? So they were listening to music and it turned sort of an orangey color. All right, so you sort of saw an orange color when you were listening to music. So what does that mean? It means that the brain is starting to get activated in different areas. Different parts of the brain are activated as a result of listening to the music. And then they had musicians play the music that they were listening to. So they took their functional MRIs, a musician's MRI, playing the music. The brain went nuts. It was like red and orange and yellow and all different parts of the brain. So what that really showed was that music can actually stimulate the brain in such a way as to increase levels of awareness and creativity because all different areas of the brain were uh, activated. Sure. It wasn't just the, the hippocampus where their memory is stored. It wasn't just the temporal lobe or the frontal lobe where mood is stored. But it was you're just everywhere. you're there and listening to it, right? Is there, is only, a, there is some. But, but, but you don't have the same neurological response in exactly, the central nervous system that connects Exactly. So together. that's what they were able yeah. to find. Um, they were able to suggest that listening to music can be therapeutic. Oh, and we, we, we sort of know that. Right. But playing music. So I actually recommend to patients. And I say, well, how can I, how can I get through this cognitive problem that I'm having? And I say, well, why don't you take up an instrument? You know? You know, buy a little piano and just start playing. Oh, you know, I used to play the piano when I was a kid. You know, that's a really good idea. And this is what you start to do in terms of linking the music and the medicine uh, type of relationship. Bob right? Marley's message. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I just think that when, when you look at it that way, it's therapy. Yeah, you know? And everybody absolutely. says, well, music therapy. Okay, I can push back on that and say it's not going to cure anything. Right. But what it's really going to do is it's really going to enhance your ability to think through things and it can enhance your ability to feel better, which is a wellness type of parameter anyway. Cure is a tough word. A cure is an impossible word. It's, because what are you word. curing? <laughs> right. you know, you know, what, am I curing the body? Am right. I curing the mind? If am I, I curing cure both? my mind on a daily basis and live to 15 years longer with longevity, have I cured something? Exactly. Or have I just made my life better? That's perfect. And I think that's the best way of looking at it, honestly. Yeah. You know? And we can get very technical and we can start saying, well... You know, is it worthwhile to look at these algorithms for, for um, genes and being able to match different gene profiles to different types of personalities or different types of physical attributes or physical things that you can modify, risks that you can modify? And the answer is yes. Yeah. But the clinical aspect of that, being able to say to people, well, do this and this will happen, do this and that will happen, we don't, we're not there yet. No. And this is what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. You know, what is pseudoscience versus what is science um, in trying to meld those together when there's a lot of misinformation out there. Right. And we talked actually about all the misinformation about cannabis. Yeah. And I said, oh my God, this is, this is so important now, and especially to understand this misinformation uh, about what that really means to a patient, right? So in its growth of cannabis, mm -hmm. now that we're on this topic, because... Oh, I'm this, sorry, I mentioned it. We don't no, really... No, you know, I <laughs> I'm only kidding, I'm only kidding. This, this is a subject that, <laughs> that, that uh, you know, it, it's booming right yeah, now. Yeah, it really you know? is. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and I'm so happy it is because, you know, there is so much long-term studies on the benefits of, you know, 
just this plant in general in so many different ways. And can you just explain a little bit about, you know, your, uh, I don't want to use the word interaction with cannabis, but, you know, kind of, you know, in, in, in the sense of how you've used it in the work field, sure. you know, and, and how you see its benefits just in general as okay. to, and where we're we going with it with the yeah. society, as a society today. Well, it's a great question, uh, which I'm not going to be able to answer completely, no. but I can give you some uh, <laughs> insights into it so far. Fair um, enough. Uh, my uh, role um, <clears throat> right now at Northwell is to be uh, on the committee for cannabis, uh, both research and education. Uh, we really feel, and I really feel, as my, my own uh, opinion, that this is something that we really have to do. So yeah. I'm sitting on the committee and we're trying to come up with ways in which uh, we'll be able to educate the public and physicians uh, about this. Uh, but the problem with all that is that we don't have a lot of evidence and data to actually hang our hats on in terms of what we can do with it. Um, so a lot of it is empirical. Um, there, there have been some studies done, as you, as you mentioned, yeah. um, that cannabis itself has been around forever, forever right? thousands right. of years. Right. Um, and, and in terms of trying to understand what, what components of it will be benefit, most beneficial to patients, this is what we're trying to do. So when New York State made it legal uh, back on January 2016, I was one of the first doctors to actually get trained in it. Oh, and wow. I was skeptical about whether I was going to do a lot of it because I said, well, I will do it in situations in which we have nothing else to offer patients, et cetera. Uh, but then that changed because over the course of the next three years, which is bringing us to now, um, we, myself and I, um, a colleague of mine, we've certified well over 1,000 patients, all cancer patients. Um, and we have found um, a benefit, uh, but that benefit is very difficult to uh, be able to put into a, let's say, well, a cohort of patients that it. will do this right. or do that. So what we've been able to determine is, well, the proportion of CBD and THC for this particular patient is going to be different for this particular patient. And so if someone's coming in who has, uh, for example, um, a complex polysymptomatology, in which uh, they have pain, and they have nausea, and they have a poor appetite, they have food aversion, they have weakness. What can we do for that patient versus a patient who is just simply nauseous or a patient who can't sleep at night because they have insomnia and anxiety? How do I make that fit into a patient in addition to medications, obviously, that we'll be using in that situation? So we have been able to come up with, um, I'm not going to use the word algorithm yet, but a different patterns of how we're going to match a particular patient's symptom how? with the uh, proportion of cannabis and THC that we're able to do. And so what we have found with these thousand patients that we've certified is that we can get close enough to be able to do it. Um, but we might have to change things around over time because everybody, again, has a different phenotypic reaction right. Six to later, that particular yeah, type yeah. of uh, CBD sure. uh, proportion. So that's really where we're going. But in addition, we want to educate uh, other physicians. We want to get more doctors to um, certify patients because we're overwhelmed with requests to certify patients. There's only a small amount of doctors who are doing it. And there are some... Why do you uh, think that is? Well, although it's obviously because, as far as I'm concerned, they either don't believe that it works or they haven't been educated into how it works or they're not interested in it because the paperwork is too difficult or carrying this is too difficult. But there are unscrupulous folks out there, unfortunately, who are charging patients hundreds and hundreds of dollars just to get certified. 
and, and not, not following them and not understanding what this is all about. We're trying, uh, to, we're trying to prevent that. We really, we really yeah. want to train people to do it right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and this is part of our mission yeah. to be able to do that. Not only that, but we want to be able to educate the public. So we're doing outreach programs about this. Again, we're getting pushback from some elements, but we're getting a lot of buy-in from other elements. So this is, again, in the very early stages yeah, sure. of what we're trying to do with this particular um, product. Um, and now what's happened is that CBD from hemp has gotten itself into different pharmacies. Yeah, sure. um, I, wherever I go now, I see a pharmacy. We carry CBD. Um, and so how do we know what to do with that? And I get those questions a lot as well. And what are the different forms of CBD? I, I, I mean, so as let's say I'm a consumer who knows nothing. I walk in and a, a CBD that I would get from a controlled substance uh, area such as a medical center like yours mm -hmm. is, I would only assume as an intellectual consumer that is different than the CBD I buy at the store oh yeah, that's here, right? Yeah. So, so how do people weave through that difference? Well, like, you know, it's really you're weaving because they've just legalized it, well, right? So essentially, anybody well, can well, get let me make, CBD. Let me make it. Let me make a distinction. Medical marijuana is a different uh, product. Okay. So if I certify someone for medical marijuana, they, in New York State, it's coming from cannabis sativa, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, one of the common ones. There's cannabis sativa and cannabis indica, but we're using sativa. And so when we're using that, um, when I'm certifying a patient for the medical marijuana, I get a better sense as to what I'm giving that patient. It's called the entourage effect. The entourage effect means that within every uh, cannabis plant, there are 30 to 60 active uh, phytoactive uh, elements whether they be um, isoflavones or phytoestrogens or whatever it might happen to be. So what we're really trying to do is trying to understand, well, how did that patient respond to the 50 different uh, elements? Well, this is what we're talking about with phenotypes again. And everybody's going to respond differently. Right. Okay. So when I'm doing a proportion, I do know that CBD has more of an anti-inflammatory effect and has more of an anxiolytic effect as an anti-anxiety uh, type of thing. Um, and counteracts or antagonizes some of the psychoactive effects of THC. So if a person has multiple symptoms and I sort of want to balance things out, I typically use something called harmony or a type of... Um, music. Yeah, again, music, <laughs> where it's the equal proportions of CBD and THC. So the CBD will counteract the THC psychoactivity and yet I'm still treating nausea, pain, inflammation, anxiety the kinds of things that we can do through the entourage effect. Now, which element of the entourage effect is actually at play, I don't know, all right? I just know that everybody's gonna react differently to it. As long as it's safe, which it appears to be in the right dose, then, um, then it could, we could work with that, right? So if I give someone high CBD, low THC, because I'm really trying to treat more of their, their neurologic inflammatory response, that's fine. Um, and if I have to go to pure CBD from cannabis sativa, I can do that as well. There have been papers published now on the benefits of CBD as a neuromodulator. So in patients who have, let's say, a brain tumor with spasticity, I will use a high CBD or pure CBD product from cannabis sativa, as opposed to someone who's coming in saying that they can't eat and they're nauseous and they're losing weight, I will give them a combination of THC and CBD. Mm. That's different. So each patient will be different with that respect. Now, 
the CBD that you're going to get in the drugstore, which is available without a prescription, yeah, without right. certification or anything else, is the wild, wild west, man. Right. All right. Um, the dosing we're not quite sure about, um, whether it be 40 milligram, 100 milligram, 200 milligram, right. 500 milligram. Um, in the purity of they come in these the purity of the of the product, yeah. Knows exactly. Exactly. How you divide that well, or what, what we, the right number what is. We know, what we think, based on our experience so far, is that there are certain companies that have pure products. Sure. So those are the, and I'm not going to tell which, I'm not going to say which ones of those actually. Not it's right, not, yeah, not no, appropriate to do. But um, the uh, a lot of the uh, pharmacies are looking at these pure products. And the only thing that I can recommend to patients so far is that the CPD that they're beginning in the drugstore could help them with anxiety, it could help them with uh, inflammation, and it could help them with um, some spasticity or those types of things, you know, like uh, ne neuropathies mm -hmm. and things of that nature. But I'm not going to be able to tell them how much to take yet, uh, how many milligrams might be perfect for them, uh, and which company is the best one. We have a few that we've worked with. Uh, that we think are pretty good, uh, but again, we can't, uh, you know, put into uh, words. Uh, well, this one's better than this one, and this one's better than that one. We can't say that yet. Well, if if, if there's companies, let's say in in, in states where this mm -hmm. is legal, yeah, you, actually, we're now we're talking about marijuana, right? Well, we're not well, talking about CBD. Well, no, no, no. But even with the CBD, right? So, so because that's legal from the standpoint of the federal government not doing anything about it, right? Well, but are, don't they have to then regulate as to understanding if they're going to make it legal, what has to go in each oh, one of these? Well, these? yeah, I mean, for medical marijuana, that's been regulated. No, no, I'm talking yeah. about the CVS brand. Oh, oh okay. But, um, but again, there's a whole so area of recreational marijuana that is we haven't even discussed yet. Yeah. Which you can just go in and buy regular marijuana. So, regular marijuana. So that's no. recreational, is what you're saying. Yeah, which but you're the, purchasing at CVS. Well, eventually, if it becomes legal to do but recreational marijuana. But even the CBD aspect of it, it's really not. You don't really know what's. No, you don't. Right. You so don't. that's my point, right? Yeah, and 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 so as it stands right now, uh, you're going to be seeing CBD in soda. And, sure, uh, yeah. and cookies and, and, and everything, everything and everything now. They're making T-shirts for it. Exactly, okay. and so. Putting CBD, and John and I have talked about this, uh, into, let's say, a nutrition drink of some kind, mm -hmm. um, everybody's doing it, yeah. but nobody really knows what that really means. Right. Okay? So, it, it, is it safe? Well, so far, the data tells us that it is, um, but can every, can people sort of... so oh, far. So, <laughs> can, 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 yeah, so... Well, eventually, you know, 10 years from now, realize that we made a mistake in putting it in Coke, you know, <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Right. Um, and the answer is we don't know. So we need to really sort of look back and sort of <clears throat> not withdraw, but just sort of take a deep breath and be able to try to figure out what we should do about this as society and as a uh, consumer about what to do with it. And we don't have that information yet. So I, I want to ask your opinion on something. You know, here we are in this opioid crisis oh, of gosh, the yeah. youth, of yeah. all of these doctors for years, you know, mistreating what they were given and, mm -hmm. you know, just writing things and diagnosing things and 
it spawns into this huge issue that we now have today of all of these kids with these psychological issues from both a social media standpoint and not fitting in and all of these things being prevalent and then all of a sudden being spawned into treating it with you know oxycodone and all kinds of other you know uh, mental drugs that mm. doctors for a while now just pumping into mm. these kids and this is something I've had very personal experience with you know I my brother-in-law at the age of 28 died two years ago from this so I, I and I dealt with it for 10 years my mm. wife and I you know I, mm. I saw this whole process and there was nothing I can do about it right so I got that but looking forward on how we can learn from experiences like that that have affected every single one of us to some way or extent. I, I talk, the, the, the craziest thing I tell people is when, you know, after this incident had happened and people were coming to visit us, the overwhelming number of people that shared their story with me and that my son suffers from this, my nephew suffers from this, my cousin suffers from this, I've lost this one. And this wasn't like, oh yeah, my friend's friend's kid. It hits everybody, I, I, it hits everybody I, I, in a I, I, very I was personal way. It, it, and, I, so and I was true. like, okay, this is just out of control. So, totally. you know, so, so why not understand how to use something like CBD mm -hmm. in the younger crowd right. of children in terms of helping whatever issue they have instead of pumping these right. things into them like what's your opinion on on, on that and, and and where is well, that well, when you look at future? when you look at eligibility criteria in terms of writing a prescription not writing a prescription but certifying a patient for medical marijuana this is what i'm thinking about we talked about regulation you use yes. that word i think is really important um, one of the eligibility criteria is opioid reduction or opioid management so trying to opioid spare patients okay so if you're if you're using medical marijuana for the purposes of substituting the medical marijuana, which doesn't have the same connotation or risks or anything with regards to uh, comparing it to opioids, mm -hmm. right? Um, we have been successful in getting folks off of opioids with medical marijuana. I mean, I've had personal experiences with patients this is music com coming in on... Um, several hundred milligrams of morphine a day who are now on zero mor morphine a day because they're taking medical marijuana and it's very and they're totally functional and that's the thing that i think we need to be able to report in a very scientific way being able to look at it longitudinally and prospectively well how can we help these people i mean it isn't the eligibility criteria now for new york state it just got in there a few months ago and that's something that we really need to look into when you're talking about CBD that you're going to buy in the pharmacy, I, I honestly cannot say that that's something that a, a person who is opiate addicted can go to the pharmacy no, 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 and be no, able I'm to take that out. Strictly from a medical standpoint. But from a medical yeah, yeah. standpoint, no, from a medical standpoint, there's certainly room to be able to do that in such a way as to um, really transition a patient from opioids off of opioids. There are other ways of doing it as well. There are um, different types of techniques that addiction physicians use with drugs in order to be able to um, transition those folks. Methadone is one, mm -hmm. Suboxone is another mm -hmm. one, and there are a variety of ways of doing that. And if I have a patient who's been on higher doses of opioids and I want to transition them down, I wean them down and we use these kinds of substitutes. And I've been doing it for a long time for cancer patients. I'm not an addiction doctor, but I'm able to get these folks off of medication or substitute it one way or the other. 
Um, and that's an important distinction. I mean, I have been prescribing opioids now for, what, 40 years? I have yet to have a patient OD because we've been able to do it in such a way as to really monitor it. And there are risk factors in terms of a patient being able to tolerate this, not they're called opioid risk factors, um, smoking, family history, um, history of um, sexual abuse as a child, all these things factor into that particular risk um, and, and how it's phenotypically expressed, as we talked about before. See, it's such an important area, yeah, right? So if, you, if, yeah. you look at, if you look at the population between ages 18 and 45, 5% of those folks who are given a simple prescription for Vicodin for a week will become addicted. That's 5% of that population. You're talking about 5% of what? 5 million people? 5% of 10 million people? This is why we're having a problem with this. Mm -hmm. And then another dynamic that I don't think is well understood or actually communicated to the public is the following. When you look at prescription drugs versus heroin that's been laced with fentanyl, you're looking Mm -hmm. at two different animals, okay? Prescription drug abuse is is definitely there and it's definitely rampant. But the problem with that is sort of twofold. The first one is that the drugs have become very expensive now. The copays are huge. And so the potential for abuse of prescription drugs is still there, but it's harder to do. So what's happened is that heroin that's in the community that's been laced with fentanyl is so much cheaper than getting an oxycodone pill on the street that people are overdosing and ODing and dying from the heroin and from the fentanyl sure. that's out there. Yeah. And that represents a good, I'm going to say, anyway, when you look at statistics, 60 to 80% of the uh, deaths yeah. are caused by that, yeah. not by taking 50 oxycodones. No, you right. see, because they're harder to get. But the oxycodone but is that's what triggers what, that's the exactly, response that's you what, want that. That's what got them to right, that point. Right, exactly right. That's and, the problem. And so that's what the problem is. So if you're able to um, educate physicians as to how to do that, then you're going to have a much different element. And it has happened in situations, for example, New York State has passed a law stating that if a physician wants to write a prescription for any opioid, they have to take a course. They have to do the course online, pass the course. This is new? It's within the last two years. Okay, so naturally I took the course, actually helped write some of the questions. (laughs) And and what what really happened with that was that the rate of prescription drug abuse dropped at least 14% in the first year when this happened. Um, But the problem is that there were, I think the numbers, if I have them right, somewhere in the order of 50 or 60,000 licensed physicians in New York State, and only 5,000 physicians took that course. What happened to those physicians who didn't take the course? Well, they can't write opioids. So what about those 5,000 physicians that are writing opioids for the other 45,000 physicians who won't do it? That's what the problem is right now. Not every physician, you're not mandated to do it. If you don't take the course, you can't write a prescription opioid in the hospital. All right. How about as a primary just physician? Same thing. You can't do it if you don't take the course. And this is in every state now? No, just New York State is one of them. There are other states, but New York State was one of the first that did this. What are we waiting for here? Well, I, I think that as a country, we need to be able to make, and I don't want to make too many political statements here, but we need to be able to understand the differences between what we just talked about. Uh, how do we how do we get folks to manage pain without using opioids? Right. That's the huge number one question. A paper was just published recently in the Pain Journal. I read it just the other day, 
in which patients with painful neuropathies, and this, that represents like 8% of the population, that's you know millions of people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> when prescribed um, medication for the neuropathy, 80% of those folks got the wrong prescription. They got opioids instead of non-opioid prescription medication that will take care of the problem without using an opioid. So those folks got prescription medications that were not matched to their particular problem as we talked about before. And they could have done better without an opioid for the neuropathy if, they, if that physician had right, written it the correct way. And that's what we need to teach. And that's what we need to be able to do from, from multiple areas and standards. Um, so standards are really important. Best practice is really important to be able to do that. But how do you get that out there? You educate, you educate, you educate, you do outreach. Uh, you, you're able to do certain statutory things uh, in which you are able to say to physicians, well, you, you're obligated to do this and you have to do it this way. And this is what's happening. And uh, I, I know there's a lot of paperwork and there's a lot of regulation now, but you know what? It's worth it because if you don't do that, it's the wild, wild west. Right. And, and this is what we're really trying to understand. And I heard that from a, a dear friend of mine who is a, 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 a drug abuse counselor. He's, like, uh, he's a psychologist. And he called me one day and he said, you know, Suffolk County is now the wild, wild west. That's what yeah. the FDA considers yeah. it. Because the, it, the prescription drug abuse plus heroin has just absolutely inundated this area. Yeah. And it's devastated areas in Suffolk yeah. County as well as Nassau County. And also, if you just extrapolate that out into the rest of the country, I mean, there are places in, I, I, I read about town, whole towns in West Virginia that are completely wiped out. There's nobody, there are no men between the ages of 18 and 40 who are either still alive or not sick. And that's really unbelievable. That's unbelievable. You know, when you think about it. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that from a political standpoint, you can take one stand and say, well, what, what will benefit everybody? And then you say to yourself, well, we have to be able to regulate this in such a way as to understand the distinction between what leads to this, the 5% that I told you about, and, and how do you treat those people uh, when they have pain? And this is part of what we're really trying to deal with. Proper pain management for a cancer patient or a patient with sickle cell disease is completely different than those who have a broken ankle or a root canal or sure. you know chronic back pain, for example, which is a huge problem huge. in terms of trying to uh, treat that with an opioid. It just doesn't work. Right. And I tell people it's one that of the come biggest in, issues of it, why people it's get a huge it issue. Right. It does not help very much. It might help a little in some cases, but not a lot. And so that's part of what our challenge is. And I actually testified uh, in the Opioid Abuse Committee in front of the Lieutenant Governor, and I asked her, you know, she asked me, um, well, how do we manage this? I said, well, first of all, let's not limit our ability to treat patients with cancer pain and sickle cell pain, which is hugely painful, uh, versus those who have back pain. And she agreed, and she said, we're not going to do it that way. And New York State doesn't do it that way, but insurance companies do. So I have patients with cancer pain, terrible cancer pain, that I have to appeal by a peer-to-peer -peer or a letter of appeal that this patient should be getting this medicine. So they're waiting and waiting and waiting for the appeal to be activated on by the insurance companies. And it's extremely stressful for the patient to say, my God, I need, I need my morphine, I need my oxycodone, I need my hydromorphone because I have bone metastasis, for God's sake. And the insurance company said, well, did you try this, this, and this, and this first? And I said, no, we, don't, we, we can't wait for that. You right. know, the patient needs what I feel that they need. Uh, so this so is part of the problem. there are situations where it's needed. Absolutely yeah. it is. 
And those situations we need to be able to have flexibility and uh, not have limitations put on how we manage those patients. So I do want to make that distinction. Yeah, no, I understand. Patients who have cancer pain, patients who have sickle cell pain, patients who have intractable pain from multiple sclerosis and things like that, sure. uh, they need what they need, right. okay? And we can help them with medical marijuana. That can be helpful. Maybe even CBD might be helpful for those folks once we're able to understand how it works. But in folks with uh, mechanical back pain and folks with um, you know, musculoskeletal pain and things like that, um, we have to be able to um, educate physicians to not use opioids in these situations yeah. because you have alternatives. We've also learned about a type of pain syndrome called central sensitization syndrome. And we talked about functional MRIs before, but for those folks, about 20% to 30% of all people have uh, an inability to uh, modulate um, pain in such a way as to get um, resistant to opioids. So central sensitization means that there's a, there's a place in the brain that uh, prevents a person from um, uh, understanding, uh, not understanding, but reacting to their peripheral nervous system. It's called uh, peripheral sensitization of a, um, or hy hypersensitization of the peripheral nerves. So the brain gets all confused in some people, 20 or 30%. So the central sensitization basically means that um, we used to call it fibromyalgia. <laughs> it's really not. Fibromyalgia is this awful term because what it really connoted was that, well, you know, these folks, you know, they just, they don't, they have just chronic pain and they just want, they're drug seeking. Well, they're not. Their brains cannot process pain correctly. And as a result of that, if you have a history of, of having pain as a child, if you get trauma, et cetera, et cetera, um, as you get into an adult, you can develop fibromyalgia syndrome, which is not rheumatologic, but is actually a, um, a brain dysfunction that is related to what we called before a genetically programmed problem that's phenotypically expressed if you're damaged. If, you, if you've never been damaged with pain, you've never suffered any kind of pain, you probably wouldn't develop this central sensitization syndrome. But if you're damaged by, we have and I've found this in patients who've gotten chemotherapy, in patients who have experienced trauma or radiation or anything like that, a significant percentage of patients develop the central sensitization syndrome, so they, they, they hurt all over, and, and opiates don't help them. Yet, many of them are prescribed opiate after opiate after opiate, and they, what they really needed was something completely different, an atypical sure. antidepressant or something like that, that would have helped them better. So, we're, we're starting to learn about this now. It's very new science, <clears throat> excuse me, and and the expression, phenotypic expression of what a person goes through as a result of their gene profile can really be modified if we can recognize it beforehand. So this is fascinating, by the way, to me. Um, <clears throat> so here we are, right? You know, there's all of these different treatments that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's like the human um, experience or, you know, the human experiment, sort of say, from the beginning of time, from the Sumerians and the Egyptians and how they used medicine and, you know, different kind of even um, herbs and psychedelics to treat, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the mental patients that they had at the time in, yeah. in, in their experiment. Here we are 5,000 years later, and we're still trying to experiment and figure out the little well, details. And, and the expression like, I like to use <clears throat> is that um, someone who, if someone says to me, well, there's no evidence for this, um, and I'll say, well, it doesn't mean, you know, the lack of evidence does not mean the evidence is not there. Yeah. It just means we haven't found it yet. Yeah. Um, we and the ex it. Well, the experience of 5,000 years worth of uh, empirical, you know, types of approaches 
is useful, but you have to, if you want to be a scientist, you have to apply the scientific method in order to really try to figure this out for large groups of, of patients who can express themselves differently, right? So um, the, the use of, say, medical marijuana 2,000 years ago, the use of different, you know, psychedelics and things of that nature, there's, a, there's a, something of a literature about it, but a lot of it is certainly not the way we would want it to be in terms right. of, uh, you know, really uh, critically evaluating it. But is it worth approaching? Yes, it's worth approaching. Well, I don't know if you've heard, I, and, I, and I read this all the time, it's a very controversial thing, people microdosing acid nowadays, yeah. okay? Yeah, I and, know about and, that. And, and, and its effects on the daily brain. Right. It's productivity levels, right. you right. know? And, and then, you know, um, if you have heard about that, can mm -hmm. you just, you know, talk a little bit about, you know? Well, there was, <clears throat> there was there's still work being done at Hopkins on uh, the use of psychedelics in patients with intractable suffering, physical suffering. And, and this is now what, that, that so, so just to clarify what yeah. that means. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. what, what's happened is that, um, you know, when a certain percentage of patients, um, small percentage, but a significant percentage, just will will not get their uh, physical suffering under control, the pain under control with, uh, you know, what current you medications. What you were alluding to before, because right. there's a mental issue. And they're terminally ill. Uh, many of them are terminally ill. A study was done in which they're looking at um, uh, low doses of LSD and mescaline and things of that nature, mm -hmm. and that puts a patient into an altered state. Mm -hmm. And that altered state allows them to um, not suffer. Uh, even though they might be in bed or not functionally, uh, they're functionally impaired, but they're not suffering, and it does help them with both existential suffering, which is a non-physical uh, type of suffering uh, that is a whole other sure, that's topic. a whole other world, yeah, <laughs> uh, existential suffering. Uh, but the point is that um, you know, when you're talking about microdosing, um, it's probably something that. It could be done, but as it stands right now, as a as a medical uh, professional, um, I couldn't I can't advocate that. I can't say yeah, that's something to look into. I just said there has been some work done in it so far, and uh, we have to be able to understand how that works in terms of brain chemistry and, and what it does to the to the brain, to the functional brain, and, and to the rest of the brain. Um, so I think that uh, when you when I read things like this about microdosing and about the use of psychedelics. I look at it from a curiosity point of view. I look at it from a scientific curiosity point of view um, and certainly would say to myself, well, a lot more work needs to be done in this because the evidence is lacking. Um, but it doesn't mean that it won't be found. And so I, I maintain an open mind about a, a lot of these things that I say. But you have to educate yourself and we have to educate uh, everybody about you know, neurochemistry and, and how that factors into uh, brain function. Um, it's really a fascinating area. Um, you know, we use the term mindfulness, I think, in such a way as to understand wellness. Um, these are very, uh, these are very uh, nice terms, that nice quote-unquote terms, uh, but they don't um, go further in really right. trying to understand what this means from the standpoint of uh, neurochemistry, from uh, what, what this is all about. Uh, like you were saying before, I think we're at the very beginning of this and it's an extremely exciting time to be in yeah. uh, both from the standpoint of pain management from the standpoint of what we're doing with uh, these new classifications of, of uh, active products active medications whatever you want to you know, use as the term um, and also in cancer treatment um, because I've seen a huge evolution just in the last 10 years uh, from how I started in, in cancer where we, we, we were forced to give such really toxic treatments 
Now we're treating things much more more sophisticated fashion. We're getting much better uh, responses, and people are living much longer. Uh, immunotherapies now are, are, are starting to revolutionize the treatment of cancer, as well as other types of immunomodulatory mechanisms. We're starting to understand this much better now. So the use of chemotherapy over the course of, say, the next 10 years is going to be significantly changed. So do, do you see cancers being something that's more treatable as we move on, something like HIV-AIDS where it just Absolutely, 100%. Um, trying to convert it into a chronic disease, mm-hmm. uh, which we've actually had some success with now, um, and also in, in terms of, I guess, the term curative therapies um, it can really be part of what we're seeing. We, I, we have patients now that we're following that clearly would never have survived five years ago and now are just hmm. in remission, doing beautifully. Um, but again, a chronic management aspect is what we're trying to do. We're trying to create cancer, uh, recreate cancer into sort of like diabetes on insulin, Got sort it. of like that, uh, right? And in some respects, analogy. we're getting there, you know, <clears throat> especially with immunotherapies, especially with uh, different types of um, what are called biologic response modifiers. So patients who have specific targets that we can actually use a specific drug to target that particular um, gene expression, again, a different type of mutation, so to speak. Some, some are mutated, some are what we call wild type. And we're actually able to target that particular area. And if there's a mutation, um, for example, what's called an EGFR mutation in a patient with lung cancer, and we can target that with a, with a single pill and that patient can stay in remission or stable for years. This is really different than when we had those same patients 10 years ago who would have maybe lived a year with chemo and gotten sick as heck with it. Now we're able to give them pills, and these pills really work against these particular mutations. Same thing with some of the other uh, cancers that we see. Um, The the treatment of leukemia now is very specific for subpopulations who may or may not respond to specific types of drugs. And there's been an explosion in in FDA-approved drugs for different types of leukemias, lymphomas, uh, as well as solid tumors that it's hard to keep up with. I recently recertified in medical oncology. We have to take a test every 10 years to recertify. And I made the joke was that if I, I recertified 10 years ago, and I said, if I went into a time machine, uh, knowing what I knew then, and my brain was full of facts, right, Mm. 10 years ago, and if I had just walked out of that time machine and taken the test today, I would have flunked the test because everything's changed, right? What I knew 10 years ago is completely, well, not completely, but very much different than what it is now. It's really different, and the field even 10 years from now is going to be so different. So I really see uh, a lot of changes, and I think uh, positive. Uh, my message here, I think, to people listening is hope. Uh, we have a lot more hope about what we, we can understand about cancer, about how we can treat pain, um, how we can use some of these newer um, um, how can put resources or choices that people can make about maintaining their wellness. Uh, these are all very important areas. And nutrition, oh God, do we have another two hours yeah, I, that we can talk about nutrition? I, just have, I have a question <laughs> yeah. about what a patient goes through during the process. Because I think for a lot of people who aren't educated in it or it, you know, don't have a wealth of knowledge, yeah. If a doctor says, well, you, know, you have cancer, it's like they automatically, I think, probably assume, oh, shit, like, that's yeah. it. That's, yeah. it. that's yeah. it for me. I'm yeah. done. Yeah. yeah. How do you so, overcome that? <laughs> not only how do you overcome that, but, like, where have you seen that sort of led in the journey? Because, you know, HIV AIDS, you, was that not like a death sentence when it first came right. out? It was. Yeah. And, you know, 
nowadays, I, I, I guess it's a, you know Magic Johnson, you know. And, oh yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, he's so, the face. Yeah. Right, so. I, I I actually had one of the first AIDS patients um, ever reported. Mm. What, what happened was I was a sub-intern. I was maybe, you know, a year before my internship, or maybe my, right the year before my internship. We had a young guy who um, was in the Air Force, I think, and he came in with this awful infection. I mean, we just didn't know what to do with it. So <laughs> this is a great story. We're talking yeah. about <laughs> HIV, um, <clears throat> just to use that. So at the time, um, I presented him chief of medicine at Sinai, and so this is such an unusual case uh, of an opportunistic infection, you know, rare. Yeah. So we were all very interested in it. So he said, you know, there's this lab at Mount Sinai that's doing um, some new work on T cells. And it was starting, to, this is like in the late 70s. He said, why don't you take a blood sample from this patient and uh, let's, let's look at his T cells. So I went to the patient, I drew his blood, put it in my, my shirt pocket, and drove over the Triborough Bridge to, tri to Mount Sinai, and he dropped it off to um, this lab that was doing these T-cells things, right? So um, I won't mention the names of the, of the people who did the evaluation, but they were famous people. And so about a month or two later, um, no, actually it was about six months later, um, the paper appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine of the description of a new type of um, a disease uh, related to... Uh, something happening to T-cells. Um, so it turned out that the patient that I brought over there was one of the two patients that were reported. And how did that happen? The director of that lab who took the blood test from, who took the blood from my patient was having breakfast with another doctor from Sloan Kettering. And they said, you know, I get this really unusual case. And he says, you know, I've got one. He said, really? He says, yeah. He said, um, well, let's report it. So. They reported four cases, of the, the two of them, and one of them was my patient. So I had one of the very first patients with documented wow. HIV in the world, and at that time, we had nothing for these. They were all dying. That's like an aha and a oh shit moment at Yeah, sort time. of at the same time. Like, <laughs> yeah. What the heck is going on? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, late 70s, early 80s, we didn't know what to do. We really didn't. We had, you know, a couple of little drugs which really weren't working all that well. Um, and then as things evolved into the 90s, where we developed another type of classification of things, uh, we were able to really inhibit the, the, uh, the disease. And so now if you have that diagnosis, it's like, thank you, it was my prescription. You know? <laughs> uh, and that's what I want to have happen in cancer. You know, you've got pancreatic cancer. Thank you, where's my prescription? That's a you know, uh, that, uh, and, wow, that's, you know that's, that's what I want to have happen. I and will that. I see it? I think we'll see it. Um, we won't see it tomorrow, but we're heading in that direction where, and as John was saying, we'll be able to say, well, if you take this and we'll be able to help you through it, um, you will live a, a longer life or a much better life or a life of the way a diabetic would or someone with high blood pressure. Or, right. You know, you know, it's just exactly. Yeah. Uh, and this is what we're looking for. And I see it happening. I, th I think that it will be happening sooner rather than later. Look what we've done with lung cancer. Look what we've done with um, breast cancer. Even with like the really aggressive types like pancreatic. Yeah. Um, what's happening with pancreatic, which is really an area that I'm very interested in. In fact, mm. I was on the Today Show to talk about that when Steve Jobs passed away, they asked me to come on to talk about uh, whether he, his choice of treatment was correct because he did sort of thought outside the box about his treatment. Uh, I wasn't critical of it, but I did state that um, uh, there, were, there were other options that he may have been able to follow. Uh, but he didn't have uh, the type of pancreatic cancer that 
um, that we see that's a different type that's like say Alex Trebek has mm -hmm. that's different they have two they have two different types of cancers one was called neuroendocrine uh, cancer and the other one is true pancreatic cancer but in in response to what John just said um, this area is being uh, very actively pursued now because the incidence of pancreatic cancer has almost doubled in the last 15 20 years we saw maybe 35,000 cases per year in the country and say 2,000 and now we're seeing about 70,000 cases we're also seeing younger people with it, younger people with um, GI colon, cancer as well. GI cancer, colon cancer, as uh, very specifically, hmm. uh, and part of that is related to um, um, the uh, incidences of obesity in the country and processed, terrible, awful diets. Yeah, we talked about um, this and, all day And long. the microbiome, yeah. yep. which has been completely gut altered health. in these gut health, is that. critically important. Weak and just, syndrome, just starting to understand how important. Yeah. The microbiome is to and gut health is to everything, everything, including Alzheimer's and everything else. Right. Absolutely. So yeah. these are the areas that, like I said, ten years ago it was totally different, and we have to re continuously relearn what we have to what we have to be able to uh, think about for patients. So what's so cool is I'm looking at someone like yourself, you know, who is who has really figured out or or is in the forefront of figuring out this wellness treatment for people and it started in a sense of you have this much time to live let's use all the resources and then here comes a company like ours mm -hmm. okay that is looking at the same exact exactly. blueprint yeah, sure. from a you fitness know well not just from yeah. a fitness but from its infancy of how do i not let somebody get to that level and then you know but it's but but the tools that you guys are using and the same algorithm that you're using to figure out we're using in in and what we're doing mm -hmm. by having all of these different components looking at the blood type what does your environment cause you to become today mm -hmm. looking at your genes mm -hmm. what were you predisposed to before this environment turned this into this right. looking at the discrepancies between each and figuring out through nutrition through fitness you know through supplementation mm -hmm. in understanding okay what would be the perfect uh, kind of formula for this individual well, right Sam, there is no perfect formula they never well, for that individual not necessarily see the thing is that you cannot achieve perfection in this area you just can't there's too many I guess variables that's the wrong word. you're right too yeah. many variables yeah. but you can you Best can get suited. but you can get close yeah you know and that's the thing that i think we all have to agree on yeah and then using the scientific method and be able to understand how that works to to uh, apply that to whatever groups of patients that you're looking yeah. at or, or the wellness aspect of it. Wellness is now really starting to become a combination of everything right. that we've learned, That's right? right. Uh, including gene therapy, yes. including understanding risk-associated yeah. problems, risk modification. Um, and then the problem that society is going to have is that everybody's going to be living longer Right. Uh, what are we going to do with all those people? That's a different issue. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know the, the 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 calculus was made that if everybody quit smoking, uh, we'd be overburdened by too many people. Yeah. But that's a good thing to I think to that's think about, problem, right? I think yeah. that's a good problem to have yeah. as a society, not a bad problem to have Agreed, as a society. Yeah. So um, that's where we're at. I mean, I think that the um, aspect of what you're doing with Helix and Gene is right on the money, 
And you know, I think with the so type of input, well, <laughs> with the input that you're going to be getting, and again, interdisciplinary, right? Yeah. You have to be able to get the uh, opinions and insights from everybody in order for that to happen. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So uh, even genetic counseling and uh, the science behind that, um, folks that are dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis, like myself, um, we can help with this particular type of sort of mind-body connection, you know, that we're working on. And it's a... Uh, you know, there are different aspects to the connection between mind and body. Some of it, yeah. you know, depending if whether you're at Descartes and all this, you know, which is which, right. you know, which, which is the chicken or the egg, well, right? right. right. Uh, so now, now it's both. At yeah. least it should be yeah. anyway. Well, it's like the CBD-THC combo, oh right? Gosh. Where mind yeah. and body, figuring yeah. out, you know, yeah. where, where is... That's one way of looking right. at it. Yeah, so I can look at it that way. Our sure. models train your mind, change your body. You yeah. Know? I mean, sure. I do believe there is a oh, the psychological element that, oh, yeah. you know, to, to everything that you do. Yeah. You know, like my morning routine, John and I talk about this all the time. I wake up in the morning at 4.45, I do 15 minutes of yoga, and I meditate for 20 minutes. See, now, I would like minutes. to take blood from you to see what your T-cell function is I, I would, in the morning versus what it is at night before you go to I bed. I would love to. I mean, <laughs> I have a, I, I intermittent fast 15 hours a day, five days oh, a week. Oh, you do that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I... I I'm a, I'm a scientist at heart, mm -hmm. and I've put my body through many experiments, <laughs> some which I can't even talk about. But and however, to tell you know, again. right, and, and that's exactly right. Not yeah. only have I lived to tell again, I've figured out a process of in, uh, elimination through intuition, you know, and being aware. And mm. I think a lot of that awareness and intuition comes from... I've trained an aspect of my brain through 15 years of daily meditation. Right. You know, it's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's food for the soul, sort of say, that connects yeah. me to the body, to the central nervous system, to, to how my to neural pathways your, open so up. Your, right? To yeah. your immune so, system, Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, so when I get, when, I, when our nutritionist puts me on our Tanita scale, it says I have the metabolism of a 23 year old at the age of 39. You know, I'm very proud of that. My visceral fat is as low as it gets. Sure. And you know, my wife, she's always telling me, you're the happiest person I know. You don't really get stressed out. You under, you have it so well managed. And you know, it it's what I try to tell people. It's a very detailed daily discipline that I've developed over 20 years mm -hmm. that I take on with an unshakable purpose daily. Well, it's not, it didn't, it, I didn't wake up this way. No, 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 no. you don't <laughs> you wake know? up this way. You know what you I know, mean? Using, using, and that's what I want to no, show no, people. Absolutely. Like you can do this, like we sure. can help guide you. Like it's well, not, you know. You know, use the analogy. You just have to have the commitment. Well, John and I were talking about this the other day in terms of sort of integrating everything that you do it's sort of like when you first start to drive a car, right? Everything is new and, oh, did I do this, did I do that? Right. Right? And it's just, it's just too much, right? And, and, and if you do that, and then after you've done it for a while and you use the discipline and everything else, right? You drive a car the way it's, it's just become second nature. Yeah. And it, your routine is second nature to you, Absolutely. but it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. No. And it's the same thing with music. We talked about the right, music connection. That's right. You have to practice forever in order for you to get even good. It was a great quote from um, Pablo Casals, the great cellist. 93 years old, they asked him why he still practiced every single day for three hours. He says, well, I'm finally starting to notice an improvement. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? That's right? And I think that's it. You have to continuously strive for that to the, get to the extent that you're driving that car 
you know, just as a second nature kind of right. thing. And, and right. And like people ask me this, like exactly allude to what you're saying. They're like, well, what if you stop? What happens then? I'm like, there is no stop. This is, this is life. Yeah. Like this is what I've chosen powerfully, right. Right. you know? Like, and, and that's the commitment that you've made <laughs> right. to yourself. And, and, and it, there is no end result. I'm not, there is no I don't think result. I'm going to wake up and become this, uh, aha moment of of enlightenment you no, know and it work that way right it, it, it's an, yeah. it, people go for that endless search that all of a sudden i found enlightenment it's like no it, it's it's a process that if i hear you that learn I to the day that. you die right no absolutely <laughs> and, and if and if somebody does say that to you you have to take it with a grain of salt. Absolutely, you know, yeah. That's very nice. But <laughs> thank you, right? Thank you. But it's thank you for that. You know. Right, exactly. But it shows the limited scope of thinking in a lot of people. Oh yeah. You know, it's just sure. fast-paced society. Where's the enlightenment? Right. That's right. <laughs> it, it's the daily chore that right. puts a smile on your face. That's, that's your enlightenment. It. That's it. Oh man, you got it right. You got it right. You, know, you really it's do. It's like there's nothing else to it. You got it right. <laughs> it's it's just put in the work. I want to do a functional MRI of your brain. I would love to. I would. I would voluntarily come in because I. I. You know, in creating a wellness company, and this is something John and I have gotten very close. We talk a lot about. You have to walk the walk. Mm-hmm. I cannot show you what I have not experienced or learned. I cannot develop a system with with X, Y, and Z components if I don't understand X, Y, Z components and have lived them myself. Right. I'm a big believer in integrity and authenticity. Absolutely. That's what I love about you. You're, you're, you connect the dots very quickly with everything. And I think we need more brains like that. And this is what this podcast and then this whole forum is about. Yeah. Bringing on people like yourself where we can create this platform of I just conversation. I think it's a great idea. I really do. Conversation. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, in, in humans, Perspective. right? Right, perspective. I mean, yeah. we only can, we our limited scope of understanding only goes as far as our vocabulary to be able to express what we know. If we don't have a word for something, you're not going to be able to understand what it is, right? right. So in putting everybody in the room and being able to go this route, you just open up more and more and more and, and just just warrants for more conversation right. and more people hear it. And, and hopefully it's a good movement that you've been trying to do for God knows how many <laughs> well, years. I, I, and we're I like, just to, have, I like to have 100 to 200 years of experience in one room. Right. Right. If someone's there with 30 years experience, 20 years experience, 40 years experience, 10 years experience, five years experience, you put that all together in an amalgam, boy, that's powerful stuff. Yeah. And I find that the most um, uplifting and life-affirming areas, when you get that type of a uh, mixture together, you know, the power that comes out of that is tremendous. I do that with my with my uh, boards, my tumor boards, and my my uh, different types of uh, conferences. I want people to talk about my patients who have in this room, a hundred years of experience to help me understand how that goes. And boy, does it work. Kudos to that. You know, it really works. <laughs> yeah, you can't, no man is an island, you can't do it yourself. No. And you need that type of experience. Yes. And you have to be able to look at it, not vertically, but horizontally. Everybody has, this, has the same kind of input. This is how I like to look at this. It's not a hierarchy. It's completely horizontal. Absolutely. And if you look at it that way, that raises all the bar, right? The whole bar is raised if you look at everything horizontally and not vertically. Well, it, it also comes from the intuition of understanding what you don't know, right? 100%. Like, like you know, yeah. like I, I can tell you all I've told you. Right. I'm 39 years old. 
My experience has only been 39 years of age. Right. I I can't express what it would be at 59. Oh my God, the difference <laughs> you know, between 39 and right. 59 that, is that's, like, that's whoa. my point, You've right? got a lot so, to look forward absolutely. to. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I I've also have a lot to learn in absolutely. that sense. You know, yeah. like, it's, so it's like, yeah. I, I can only give you what I know till now. Yeah, <laughs> right. And nothing further. I can't predict the future. And a friend of mine is a psychiatrist, and he told me that they've redefined what adolescence is that actually, we used to think adolescence ended at age 18. Mm. It doesn't end until around 28. <laughs> so when you're 28, you're still an adolescent. And you're only getting into adulthood and early, mid, and late adulthood once you get into your 30s. And when you get into your 40s and 50s is when things really start to come yeah. together. And I noticed that in my own life I, in terms I'm of what I was able to day. put together. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was 39, I was just getting started. Yeah, same. Right? Yeah. I had finished my training, but I had just gotten started. Yeah. You know, so. So, I mean, this has been fantastic. I mean, I definitely want to have you on again. We have so much we can talk about. And, and I, this is... Uh, th yeah, this we just was, scratched the surface. We really right? just scratched the surface. Right. And, and I want, you know, our listeners to definitely come back for the 2.0 version with Dr. Delimpio. Um, now... You know, if, if, if somebody wants to, you know, look you up or get in touch with you or, or email or questions or, or your service or anything of that sort, mm -hmm. where would they find you? Like, how can somebody... On the Northwell website, um, the, uh, you, you basically, you know, Google my name and you'll, you'll get all the information that's necessary through Northwell. Understood. Um, <clears throat> including ratings and things like that. So contact information, credentials, all that is, is in there. So they'll be able to um, make contact. Again, um, you know, the practice that I have is a very specialized practice. Yes. So if someone has a, a specific medical problem, such as chronic pain and things like that, I probably wouldn't be able to see those folks because we have to have uh, only a certain type of uh, patient cohort that we can see uh, through, through the Mantra Cancer sure. Center, right? Um, but what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to do is a lot more outreach yeah, how do so, you do that? Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're actually that, working yeah. on developing that through different websites, yeah. uh, through different podcasts, and through different uh, blogs. I was going to say, and, you and have I think a blog. that yeah, that's yeah. something. Yeah, that's something that I really uh, am interested in doing. Uh, I have been for a while, and actually, uh, Northwell encourages that to do a blog. You know, with their uh, sure uh, yeah, blessing yeah. Um, in terms of what we can put together, and I, I think that's really important because. Um, I always felt to share uh, what I've learned uh, and to share what other folks have taught me is really the only way that we can keep this going. Yeah. And, and, and looking back in terms of my legacy, I think that's something that I will hope to be able to put together, that this is what I was able to share with people. And whether it had been medicine or music, if I'm able to share whatever I've learned in music, maybe in a little bit of a thing, I'll do it. You know, uh, Not as good at it as I am in medicine, but that's because I put my 100,000 hours into that's medicine. Right. <laughs> I only put a few thousand hours that's into right. my piano. That's right. But uh, it's still fun, and yeah. I still enjoy it a lot. Yeah. Good, excellent. Cool. So, Dr. Delimpio, it's a pleasure having you on, and we're looking for 2.0 version, and you can check us out. Uh, John, if you want to just give uh, the audience as to where to go to with our social media. Yeah, so you can check us out on Instagram, at uh, Helix and Gene, and you can check out our website, hgwellnessgroup.com, for our medical center here in uh, Glenhead. And, um, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. If you guys have any questions, you can always email John or myself. Uh, our emails are on the HG Wellness Group site, and um, we would love to hear from you. All right? Or you can leave us a comment on Instagram.
Sure. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Thank you. Take care.